Hi, is Chris available? Uh, sorry, who is this? My name is Brittany, a volunteer with the Bernie Sanders campaign. Bernie is running for president to make our economy and our government work for all of us, not just the wealthy few. Are you a Bernie supporter? Hell yeah, definitely. I'm Bernie or bust. Hell, I'm Bernie and bust, to be honest. Let's hose the rich and conquer the spread, you know what I'm saying? I sure do. I'm so glad to hear that. The New Hampshire primary is on February 11th. Given that you're a supporter of Bernie's, can we count on you to vote for Senator Sanders on February 11th? Hell yeah. Thank you so much for committing to vote for Bernie, Chris. As you know, this primary is so important. Winning New Hampshire is crucial to electing Senator Sanders as president and transforming this country to work for all of us, not just the 1%. So, in order to grow this grassroots campaign into a movement that can win on February 11th, we need your help. Can I sign you up to volunteer, and we'll follow up with you in a couple of weeks to get you plugged into the campaign? We'll need help mainly with canvassing, phone banking, and uh, posting, and we'll follow up with details soon. (laughs) Sorry, what was that last part? Well, we need volunteers to help with canvassing and phone banking and posting. Are you interested? Posting? Are are you telling me that Bernie is organizing, what, like an army of posters? Okay, look, I'm not really supposed to say this. It's not in the script or anything. But honestly, what Bernie really needs is posters. I mean, have you seen the discourse? We have a pretty good Twitter ground game, but we're outgunned by the blue check marks and we can't get too comfortable. But what about hashtag hot girls for Bernie? That seems to be going pretty well. You're absolutely right. But can you ever have too many posters? We need people giving nuanced takes on the Joe Rogan endorsement. You know, we need to expand the base and reach out to those we disagree with while not compromising on our progressive agenda kind of stuff. I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of those types of takes out there already on Rogan. Don't you think it's a little played out? Definitely not. We need to expand our takes and make them even hotter. We need people pointing out the hypocrisy of the liberals and the blue checkmarks takes as well. Tweeting about Hillary's turf comments, Warren's history of opposing medical treatment for incarcerated trans people, Biden's opposition to gay marriage throughout most of his career. These are important issues for extremely online folks across the Twittersphere. Yeah, but don't only like 20% of Americans even use Twitter? And besides, is like anyone's mind really being changed with all these takes and this discourse? You know, it seems like people are just looking for faves and retweets and everyone's just virtue signaling their followers who agree already with them or screenshotting and subtweeting people that they hate. Normal people don't really give a shit about any of this. Extremely onliners, libs, dem sucks, MAGA freaks aren't really going to be convinced by a bunch of podcasters chain-smoking American spirits and dunking on the New York Times. Ah. See, you misunderstand the purpose of posting. Oh, so what's the purpose? It's agitprop. We feel a righteous fury that drives us to action. And eventually, the discourse gets so wound up that we have to log off, take a self-care day, reflect on the role of posting in our lives. And you know what happens when people log off? No, what happens? They have to find something to fill the aching void that electoral politics creates. Being extremely online gives us the illusion and stimulation of political engagement. But logging off teaches us that we have to do something meaningful. So, people start texting for Bernie. They start phone banking. They volunteer at food kitchens. They travel to primary states and knock on doors. Hell, they might even read theory. This is why we have to post, Chris. We post to free people from the discourse. Damn, never really thought about that. So, Chris, can we count on you? Can you commit to posting at least 10 times a day? 
Or perhaps making an eight-tweet thread that's vague enough to bypass people's word filters, but specific enough to make sure they know exactly what you're referring to? Fuck it. I'm in. I'm so glad to hear that, Chris. We also need people to do shit posts like Bernie Chad memes to post on Reddit, and folks to compile statistics about Bernie's support from women and people of color to dunk on the wine moms for Warren on Facebook. But let's just take this one step at a time. Thank you so much for being part of our political revolution. No, thank you for calling me. Thank you for your service. Clear eyes, open heart, can't lose. And that's just what they did. The spring of 2020, we posted clear into the summer. We posted so hard, we got banned and had to make new accounts. And well, my friends, those accounts changed America. And when we couldn't post no more, we voted. And that's how we voted away all the billionaires' money. We got universal health care, free college, <laughs> and shit, we even cured the incels. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's Rich. pretty good. Cheers. Cheers to the posters. Cheers. Here's to, to the, the posters. posters. Braver than the troops. <laughs> <laughs> Braver than the troops. So, boys, how's it going? Oh, it's just week? great. Yeah? The discourse is higher than it's ever been. I have to agree. I have to agree with that. I've mostly just, every time I open Twitter, I look I look at it, and then about 30 seconds later, I make this sound. <sighs> and then it's I, true. And then I close it. Um, and then I go on Instagram, because Instagram is the only good social media platform anymore. It's true. Even Reddit sucks now. It's been it's been good for for a while, uh, except for the ads. Yeah, <laughs> like all all of them. Yeah. I, this morning I bought new shoelaces, and Instagram is already like, "Do you want boots? You want more boots? Get boots. <laughs> <laughs> Need shoes? Get some shoes." Instagram has like uh, an interesting profile of me. It knows that I'm like interested in like toys. <laughs> like little, little things that are that are that are uh, peculiar, and it's not even like I bought anything through their links, but I've checked out a lot of their links. Yeah, I wanted I've to know more about yeah, it. That, that's, that's your mistake. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. all it takes. That's so, all it takes. You know, little thumb pianos like uh, made into like little gourds or whatever. I'm like, I got to check that out. How much is that? How, that thing looks cool. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, think uh, Instagram thinks you're like a 12 year old boy that, yeah, that's much. very musically inclined. And, yeah, yeah. and loves fidget spinners. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm like, whoa, is that a titanium top? It's fucking cool. Look at it. It's like the the thing at the end of Inception. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. let me know I'm in the I'm in the reality, not in a dream's dream. <laughs> we have to go deeper. Have to go deeper. But we have gone deeper into Twitter. We certainly and it have. Fucking sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Have yeah. you guys been uh, suffering the sickness this, <sighs> so this past bad. week? Yeah i I can't even really um I can't even describe how much I hate it. <laughs> and so I figured we would spend a good chunk of the podcast talking about how much I hate it. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. That's, we don't. Have, we really don't have to. But healthy. I just. I. I haven't. <laughs> yeah. It's. Re- it's literally like turning my brain into mush. Like I can't. It's keeping me awake at night. The bad takes. They're so bad, and there's so many of them. And people are just ma- like having the same takes over and over and over again. And I just. I like people are ruining this trash. This website is already so much trash yeah. and you just, you're all ruining it even more. I, I think other people have said it before, but it's like 
if you want to change your experience online, you got to change who you, you follow. But because like some people are just about drama and constantly reposting like terrible takes just, you know, to get people like very mad and like upset. And uh, I typically have just like muted or unfollowed a lot of the people who are posting content that just like makes me really pissed, which would probably get me unfollowed by myself the more I think about it. Yeah, but- exactly. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, I might as well unfollow myself because those are my standards. Yeah. Well, also now- I follow a lot of like really good content producing me accounts. Me too, yeah. So There's Twitter's good stuff. sometimes very pleasant. Lots of cats and dogs. Part and-, of the pro- and Twitter like didn't, back in my day, Twitter didn't do this bullshit. But now Twitter posts on your, Twitter like injects into your timeline shit from People who you follow, who follow that person. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everything that everybody and their mother, like, likes. It's just... And then I follow all these accounts that, like, retweet fucking... They retweet, like, 90 to 1 ratio of what they're... And some of them are, like, mutuals. And I don't, I don't really feel good about unfollowing mutuals a lot of the time. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's hard out there. It's hard. It's really, it's it's really tough. hard. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah but- I, I, so, w- w- let's just get on record right now. The thing that is probably frustrating us the most is all, are all the bad takes about bernie sanders going on the joe rogan show yes and then well, and then joe rogan endorsing bernie for more or less saying like i will probably vote for bernie which i guess is the closest you can get to an endorsement from him and then bernie like cutting a, a short video saying thank you yeah that is for, that for is the that. rub is yeah. that most people are pissed off about that's the bridge too far is yeah. thanking joe rogan for saying that he'll probably vote for Bernie. Well, and a lot of people are considering it to be like a branded kind of endorsement of Rogan, which I think is a disingenuous characterization of what it actually is. I also understand why people are bothered by it. And I, if I had a choice, I probably would have chosen for him not to do that. Wait, primarily wait. because it's led to all these fucking terrible takes. But well, I mean, what what are people so upset about? I mean, if Jimmy Kimmel like did the same thing and he was like, thank you, Jimmy Kimmel and the Kimmel show for endorsing me. I appreciate it. And uh, you have a wonderful program. Well, I think the difference is that Joe Rogan is on record quite recently saying really horrific things about trans people. He still uses the word gay as a slur. Um, he's had he's said some like fucked up things that are not compatible with Bernie Sanders progressive pro LGBTQ plus agenda. Like, well, I guess my, I'm, what I'm trying to say is like, when has that ever really been a thing that politicians needed to do is like it would be like a co endorsement. Like, that's not a thing. Like when you accept somebody's like endorsement of you in the sense of, you know, being like, hey, thank you very much. Like, it's not like. I fully co-sign everything you've ever done, and you are a marvelous uh, example of a human being that we should all try to emulate, you know? like <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like, remember when Obama's first inauguration, he had that pastor on that, like, absolutely hates gay people? Yeah. And, uh, and was actually against gay marriage when he was first elected and campaigned on that. This isn't and Jeremiah Wright, right? No, no, no. This is the um, the evangelical pastor. I forgot his, his name. Oh, I don't remember this controversy. Uh, so here David is talking about Pastor Rick Warren, who played a prominent role at President Obama's inauguration. He had, at the time, very recently campaigned in favor of Proposition 8 in California, which sought to amend the state's constitution to declare only marriage between a man and a woman is valid or recognized in California. He equated gay marriage with incest and pedophilia and compared abortion to the Holocaust. When criticized for 
allowing the pastor to play such a prominent role in the inauguration. Obama said that he wanted the inauguration to reflect the diversity of the U.S. and include even people he disagreed with. He said, quote, It is important for America to come together, even though we may have disagreements on certain social issues. Yeah, no, that was like the first thing where it was like, oh, I guess. And then, you know, you get everyone out out there who's like, well, you know, he's got to make compromises. He's got to make, you know, uh, connections to other people and like can't just govern. He's got to govern the whole country. Yada, yada, yada. But, you know, and then there's I mean, the fact that if I'm remembering correctly, when Joe Rogan said that terrible thing about trans people, he had Barry Weiss on. Yeah who's at the New York fucking Times. Yeah. And it's like, so, like, why, like, don't Klobuchar and Warren have to apologize for their their New York Times endorsement now? Well, you, I why... mean, you should, because it's done more <laughs> terrible things than the Joe Rogan show has yeah, ever Joe done. Joe Rogan's never advocated for the invasion of a foreign country, to my knowledge. Right. I, I'd have to go back and see what his take was on He's uh, also said war. some pretty disgusting things about, like, Islam and Muslim people. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah, he has he has said some, some awful things. But, so here I guess I'll just mention, like, takes that I like and takes that I don't like, because that makes great content, right? Bernie tweeting out a video about Joe Rogan liking him is not equivalent to him endorsing him or changing his platform at all if anything it's like rogan doesn't pull bernie right bernie pulls rogan and his audience left and that is a distinction that is getting lost here and also i think we talked about this a little bit either on the last episode or the bonus i don't remember but there's this dangerous conflation that happens a lot on the left where like semiotics and symbolism and language and rhetoric become even more important to people than material social change. So like Bernie has the only platform of anyone running for president that makes gender affirming surgery free to anyone who wants or needs it at needs it at the point of service. Like he's the only person who does that. He's the only candidate who never had to evolve on LGBTQ rights because he was on the right side since the fucking seventies. And like those to me are, they, they they just get completely lost in all of this, and that 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 I think that's actually quite dangerous. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's weird when people say that Bernie is giving a platform or space for Joe Rogan and uh, anti LGBTQ rhetoric, because the whole point of an endorsement is that you don't have that platform, and the person giving you the endorsement is giving you a platform. Exactly. Right? Yes. So, it's, so I would hope that Bernie isn't making Rogan more famous and introducing him to people because th- then that would be a useless endorsement. Like the whole point of an endorsement right. is that you introduce <laughs> the candidate to new people. I'm sure there's a, a cross-pollination though. Because sure. I, I'm sure a lot of people that, you know, are, you know, of the NPR listening variety uh, have never tuned into a Joe Rogan's podcast. Right, but then, the, but then, like, how many of those NPR people are going to go, oh, yeah, you know, like, I think I should now listen to Joe Rogan more than Terry Gross, you know, or, like, you know, like, the, or now my opinion is going to be more, you know, changed by by Joe Rogan. I don't know. It just doesn't really seem like, well, it, it, I don't even, know. Yeah, even to the degree that they would, you know, engage with Joe Rogan's content and have their minds changed or whatever, like, that should be fine which is to say like people's you know like we shouldn't be like trying to hide like cultural forces from like people out there like if you're going to be swayed by joe rogan's piggish comments on xyz that's gonna happen i don't think we should be preemptively worried about people getting changed by you know being contaminated by you know piggish um 
opinions of of a uh, podcaster and like trying to keep it like. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Yes, and and like there's nothing about any of Joe Rogan's takes that are uniquely persuasive. Uh, like either persuasive <laughs> or like rare. Like if you. And he, everybody has has come across much more heinous things than anything Joe Rogan's got to say. And if you're going to be persuaded by that, you were going to be persuaded by that argument in any other setting or medium or platform. Like there's no I mean, like tw- Twitter is full of comments that are much, much more hateful and disgusting than anything Joe Rogan's ever said. Yeah. Does that mean that like Bernie Sanders has to get off Twitter because Twitter has been? And, you know, like Hillary Clinton went on the Howard Stern show and, you know, (laughs) he like asks women to like ride his dick live on the air. So um, he did a live anal ring toss event. Yeah. Yeah. But so uh, the the thing that I I find so disingenuous about it is that if the same endorsement were to go toward, you know, Warren or a Klobuchar or a, you know, anybody else. Can you imagine, can you imagine Joe Rogan endorsing Amy Klobuchar? <laughs> I can see it. I could, I could see him doing like a tail of the tape and be like, you know, people under, misunderstand her ground game. Like, you know, she, I, she's got some real submission skills. Like I've seen her uh, tra- training, you know, uh, crossing the guard. She's a monster. And you know, I have a lot of respect for people who beat the fuck out of their employees. With staplers. <laughs> like, have you seen her chuck a paperweight? Well, so punching I, well above her weight, well above her weight. So I feel a little, uh, you know, unprepared for this conversation because I have a timeline that didn't bring me any really wacky takes on this. Um, and I've also not even heard the supposed statements that Joe Rogan made that are like offensive. So I'm speaking from a bit of position of ignorance there, but I've probably listened to like three dozen episodes of the Joe Rogan show and I actually really like his show and I've listened to people who I really don't like and the long form conversation that he has which is essentially unedited and or actually completely unedited and uh just you know for as long as they want to talk often it's actually really interesting because it allows me to get a better perspective on people who i disagree with because they just like you know you give them enough rope and they say stuff that's like heinous and they say stuff that's like reasonable and like you sort of just i don't know i think it's empathetic uh and the idea of trying to you know, the whole deplatforming strategy in general, I don't really know too much about or its level of efficacy or otherwise. But I guess like, I think that having people on that have very, very different opinions on one show is is interesting, you know, like, but I haven't seen the most odious people. I know he's had like Stefan Molyneux on like twice. He's had Richard Spencer on. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's had my problem with Rogan isn't even necessarily the people that he's had on. Um, I understand why people take issue with having white supremacists on your radio show. I personally, I'm of the opinion that it's very important to know what those people think and are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't know. That's a touchy subject, whether or not you should, you know, as people frame it, give a platform to somebody like that. Look, like Joe Rogan is not creating Richard Spencer's platform. He has a platform. Um, but. I think the problem that a lot of people are having with Rogan specifically and my problem is that he's on the record saying just because you chop off your dick doesn't make you a woman like he's like he shouted you're a man with regards to like trans women. I mean, he has said like really 
heinous, hurtful uh, things about trans people. And well, that's fucked up. Yeah, it is fucked up. And those aren't like, that's not like digging through somebody's record. And, you know, in 2011, he said this awful thing. Like, these are recent statements. Of yeah, his. this is his um, official stance as it relates to. Well, uh, I don't. I, here's the thing is that does Joe Rogan have official stances on anything? Well, I like, do know that he ch- totally changes his dynamics depending on who he's, who he's talking to. That's He is like a very smart, dumb guy. And that he has like he has a fairly analytical mind. He is he knows a lot of things. I've seen him like spit facts about like this neuroscientist published in a paper last June, blah, 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 all this shit about whatever. Um, but he's also like got that dumb guy energy. And he seems to agree with basically the last person that he spoke to. Well, th- that, that's what I'm saying is he he agrees with whoever he's interviewing right now. Like he's a great interviewer. Like he has people on and basically gives them the ability to create whatever atmosphere they want in terms of conversationally and then just lets it go wherever they you know want to take it and that's incredibly interesting to listen to so like you know you listen to elon musk and it's like elon musk is like driving the conversation wherever he feels like you know they're smoking a fucking blunt on you know and drinking whiskey and like swinging around a a katana and shit and like i'm not a huge elon musk fan at all but it's really interesting to be able to see that like two and a half hours of just like (laughs) Joe Rogan, America's problematic fave interviewing somebody who's completely inaccessible, Mm -hmm. you know, or like a six hour Alex Jones special where he brings on like two or three other conspiracy cranks and they all just like geek out doing, you know, the Alex Jones thing. I would would think Elon Musk would want a self-driving conversation. I would yeah. like to see a more adversarial tone with people who have really heinous and often like violent um, viewpoints. I, I think that what you're saying makes him an entertaining interviewer. Yeah. It is not what I would call a, a good, good interviewer. interviewer. Okay, yeah. I think a good interviewer makes their subject comfortable enough to express themselves and give sufficient pushback to like challenge them and question their beliefs and give yeah. their audience a, a more like well-rounded understanding of what that person's position is yeah I, I i wish that we could almost like make joe rogan debate joe rogan in different <laughs> in different episodes he's like i i was because when this stuff was coming out i i did try to look for like the times where he said something really heinous you know to judge for myself and you know and what i did come across i, I came across like what britney said some some gross stuff but i also came across uh, him talking to eddie izzard who is not like the best person a lot of the time but uh he was also badass though yeah yeah but but they were both having a conversation about like you know societal pressures to to perform certain gender identities and to find that you know that which affirms who you feel that you are and it was very compassionate and right which is the good side of him conforming to whoever he has in the room it doesn't it of course doesn't like negate or make up for some of the terrible things that he said but i i think what this is really driving home for me is that everyone is fucking cruel to trans people like, it, the, like our media hates them and is cruel to them yeah and it and if you pick joe rogan fine but then you also have to get rid of like the entire Opinion, Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle, the entire opinion page of the New York Times. You have to get rid of fucking J.K. Rowling and, and a lot of people know, and, and all of this. And a lot of people bad. have, you know? Yeah. And and that's that's one of the, the, the issues that uh, in this day and age is like 
there's a huge, like you're saying, group of people who are otherwise acceptable, except for their position on trans, and that, like, they are canceled because of it, or they're not, depending on, like, who you are and, like, how important you you put that. Yeah, like, um, so. is, isn't it so interesting that The Guardian now has a piece calling out Bernie Sanders for endorsing Joe, or for having Joe Rogan endorse him, when that is, like, the first pro-trans article The Guardian has ever published like yeah. <laughs> they have turfs on all the time uh how about the fact that re- fucking republicans on twitter are now trying to like shit on bernie for it when the you know the, republicans. the, Repu- <laughs> the republican party that bastion of safety and justice for trans people you know i mean it's it's this this very much plays into i think the hands of uh anybody who's already inclined to not want to see bernie to uh succeed and yeah. i just think that is a hundred times more forceful in in kind of leading this discourse TM that that people just are are hanging are are hanging their hats on this because they don't want to see Bernie. And of course, it's always like cis white women that are shouting the loudest about this. Like you, your timeline is not if your timeline is full of like trans rights activism and shit like that, and you take serious issue with this. I have a lot more respect for that position than I do for fucking cis white women who write for BuzzFeed and like have never had a, a meaningful thing to say about the rights of trans people and the, and the values of their lives ever. And it's just now that, you know, Bernie Sanders did a problematic that they're, you know, so focused on this, this pressing political issue. It's very disingenuous to me. Mm. Maybe it'll bring about a serious um, surge in the trans rights movement because people are like on this now, you know, maybe this whole Joe Rogan endorsement will end up, being a net positive as it relates to our societal's uh, reaction to the way we treat trans people. I've seen a ton of, because I follow, you know, probably a dozen or so trans folks on Twitter, and I have friends who are trans, and I've seen tons of trans people saying, like, Bernie Sanders has the only platform of anybody in the race that will make my life and the lives of people that I love significantly better. And so I don't really give a shit if he posts a Joe Rogan video. Like, I am much more concerned with getting him elected so that my life will be materially different. It seems like most of the people I've seen, like, really filled with righteous fury about this tend to be cis white women. And I don't know. That's just to me, that's indicative of of what the actual motivations are for people and their hot takes with regards to this. Well, you got to think, like, uh, this is one of those moments where it becomes really clear that people want to vote based on personalities and perceived sort of static brands built around the candidate rather than actually thinking of them as a political entity or like figure that you can be swayed and judged and and uh, coerced into different sorts of action he's like just think about like whether or not elizabeth warren or amy klobuchar or pete Buttigieg or bernie sanders can be persuaded or brought to not just like saying the names of trans people that were murdered this year in the rose garden right like warren says that she'll do that like fine that shows a lot of respect but it doesn't materially help anyone you're just saying someone's name versus like is bernie sanders going to give you uh, gender affirming surgery or like get it get the government to pay for it you know or like make it right. illegal for the uh, a future president to kick you out of the military via yeah. a tweet 
Right. Yeah. And like yeah. ending right to work and making like having stronger like workplace protection so that you can't be fired at the whims of your boss for, I don't know, say being trans. And I think we talked about this maybe in the last episode, too, that like it's the difference between semantic support and like material support. Yeah. But if like if you're starting your baseline with a person in the office who cares deeply about working people and the and the compassion that you bring to them in order to like flourish as humans what sorts of arguments are you going to need to bring to him to get him to do what you want? And if it's trans people saying like, we need this kind of medical care, or we need this sort of protection in the workplace, then like you say those things very in a very straightforward manner. And he, it seems like the government will be amenable to you. Whereas if you get a more liberal centrist in, in office, you're going to need to, well, first see if, uh, you know, the human rights, uh, council, Will, human uh, rights uh, campaign. Yeah, sorry. The human rights campaign will uh, endorse your position on X, Y, Z, and then like you have to show how important you are to the economy and like right. <laughs> yeah. and, and say all these like uh, obnoxious econometric things about like how important you are to GDP. Yeah, you have to get a bunch of powerful middlemen to bring your to bring your cause before the head of the state of the United States, like, right. That's actually what they care about. Right. Like that is actually their interest, not about any particular person, but about how change happens. That's what you should care about with, uh, when you're voting for someone. And that, that's the, that's the stark difference. It does, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about talking about how, you know, uh, Warren, when she was Senator refused or thought it would be a bad, bad use of government money to give, a prisoner gender affirming surgery yeah to support incarcerated people wanting to make a medical transition yeah she said that would she said i don't think that would be a very good use of our resources yeah Mm. so how how does that do we know anything about how the prison system currently treats that like are trans people you know forced to be in the because prisons are gendered right so like you if you're trans does that put you in a different prison i think practices vary quite widely it depends a lot on your locality. I don't I don't know if there's a specific federal policy on that or not. Um, like I know, for example, Kamala Harris, when she was AG of California, I think when she was AG, right, said that she didn't want to assign incarcerated trans people, didn't want to assign them to their correct. Basically, she wanted trans women to be housed with men mm. in jails in California. So I think that it varies widely from location to location. And like, I think a lot of times what happens is they end up being uh, trans folks end up being held in solitary confinement, which is, for example, like what happened with Chelsea Manning. Um, You know, I think they answer that question of where do we put you with a form of torture, which is a form of torture. Absolutely. So that they answer the question of, well, we don't know where to put you. We don't know where you belong with. Well, we'll just put you by yourself and you can be held there for years at a time with like no human contact. Um, limited access to like the outdoors and sunshine. Yeah, that's that's quite common. I was thinking about this whole gendered confinement thing when I was recently uh, in lockup for that action that I did down uh, at the stock exchange because we were put in the drunk tank, but it was only the men. And then the women were all put in their own cells, like two or three to a cell. Uh, Whereas like the 70 men that were there were all uh, in one room. And it was way more enjoyable, I imagine, being all in one room than otherwise. And that's just one uh, small uh, thing. But it also made me think about the trans issue and like, where would they put you? Probably in your own cell, you know? Yeah, most of the time, from what I understand, they just put you by yourself. 
Yeah. Yeah. We have a long, long way to go as a society to, certainly do. you know, being able to figure out how to humanely treat each other to the point of abolition of incarceration entirely and figuring out how we can handle and deal with people that we're currently just putting in cages in a more humane and uh, just manner. Well, yeah. my, my theory of change is that you browbeat the only Democratic Socialist candidate in the race to death with funny jokes about J.K. Rowling. Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's really the way, the way, you way do to it. do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way you do it. Yeah. You know, you, you make sure that his uh, efforts to create the widest possible voter base are frustrated by your deep-seated need to signal your purity politics. Yeah, but, you're going to need a lot of yikes. You're going to need a lot of this ain't it chiefs. You're going to need a lot of um, big oofs. Yeah. But but all these tactics that try to outwoke Bernie, I wonder if, there, if there's going to be a knock-on effect where people, just to avoid l- later hypocrisy, will like actually take up the mantle of the support of XYZ, you know, group or uh, situation. Like, you already see people doing it. Yeah. I mean, you so have- good. You fucking fucking Biden has said more about like the rights of LGBTQ people in the last two days than he has in 40 years of yeah. like civil service. So, you know, I mean, so the po- <laughs> posting wars are having an effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah they certainly are. Uh, Brittany had a, uh, a, a theory about why these posts are so bad. I think that it's fucking psyops. I think the Bernie Sanders campaign is using its millions and millions of dollars to pay people to post terrible takes on Twitter that actually make him look really good. Well, where's my check? (laughs) Well, no, you have to start posting. You have to start posting shitty takes about how like Bernie's canceled now. Oh, I can do that. I can turn on your check. Yeah, that's I think he's got a volunteer army of posters that are just like parroting whatever Neera Tandon has to say yeah, so that I, Bernie looks better and better every day. I think the internet is just giving us all brain worms. I, like, everyone's like, are you a bot? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I have fucking worms coming out of my ears from uh, paying too much attention to Twitter. Uh, oh, that's yeah. why you gotta get the little tweet bird to eat the worms yeah, yeah, that's, that are coming that, out of your ears. There we go. So it makes room for more tweets. The early that's tweet why. gets the brain worm. Yeah. All right. Is that it on posting? Yeah. I think, that, I are we done so. posting? Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. We made it. <laughs> Let's move on to something actually important. So we have a very short, brief, brief update on Danny, who we talked about a couple episodes back on That's a Spicy Tomato with me and Chris, where he had been T-boned by Troy PD, who were speeding on the way to a domestic issue here in Troy, and they smashed into him. And I believe there's a new update on that? Yeah, I, I, I saw... Danny at the farmer's market yesterday, and he said that uh, the cops are now giving him a ticket for failing to yield to a, an officer. Cool. So, yeah, that's that's the update, <laughs> is that they're, uh, they're blaming him for it, that he didn't yield when they were, I, it seems like, going very fast, I would imagine. It's, at least that's what Danny's account is, that they were going so fast that, like, it would be impossible to... Which means that, like, his auto insurance is not going to cover it. Obviously, the, the any medical bills or any damage to his car, the cops obviously aren't going to cover it. I mean, that just really, like, is so, it's so fucked up. Yeah, I mean, I've heard from other people that have been hit by cops, by Troy cops, actually. It's not the first time. It's like, so, it's so common that when Danny was talking about it, someone nearby said, oh, yeah, that happened to, like, it was some relative of theirs that, like, also got hit by a Troy police officer. And that's what they do. They, they write a ticket and make you at fault. Cool. Super cool. Yeah. 
So. Insult to injury. Yeah, for real, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, best of luck, Danny, and that hopefully um, there was, you know, some type of, I don't know, forensics that will prove your case. Yeah. Exactly. Like, here's the thing, like, for maybe people who don't live around here, right, is that, like, there, there are old, old buildings and they come up pretty close to the street line or, you know, to the, your sight lines. And, and then if there's, like, car, cars parallel parked also, it is kind of hard to, like, see oncoming traffic yeah, in yeah. another direction and troy cops have the lights and sirens that it's not like new york city cops where like they have that base rumble that they use that actually is designed to be easier to tell where it's coming from they, they don't have that it's just regular police siren. yeah when you hear a police siren in troy so you don't know where you it's have coming no from. idea where it's coming from and, hmm. and, and if they're and if you're going so fast that the, you don't won't see the lights until it's too late you know and like he was going in to hear dan tell it he was going with green light so, so, like, there's been no way to tell. And that's why, like, uh, uh, cops that are, like, half as competent, yeah. <laughs> like, will will go, still go kind of slowly through an intersection. In their defense, not uh, brutalizing and taking advantage of the civilians of Troy has left them very overworked. Right. Yes, so, that's true. That's true. Know. Oh, in terms of, yeah, the, the, the whole... Um, bail reform being yeah. blamed for overtime was pretty yeah. heinous. Um, but the they have to have some type of video, right? They got body cams. I heard about this. No, they, no don't. they don't. They don't have body cams or dash cams in no. Troy. Nope. Like that is At not all. expensive. Which should <laughs> be like, that should be a it, it, federal it should be a federal law that they have to at least have dash cams. It's absurd. Like that, that's like two hundred dollars, like one time purchase. It's, well, it just no, runs. Well, so no, it, that's the thing though, right? So Taser, the company Taser, which is the largest seller of like body cam systems. They call themselves Dropbox for cops, where it's not just because this is what Anasha was saying. Anasha Cummings, District Four Rep, was that why should we buy a system like this when you just like get GoPro cams and like stick them to a cop or something like that? And it's not that's not very expensive. But none of these systems are like that. They are constantly recording and then like buffering and uploading to uh, server space, and it's thousands of dollars per month for like a, a leased system whoa that's what when you hear like body cameras it's a it's a leased system with a uh, dedicated server space and a lot of off-site stuff and that is actually i mean that's like kind of how the laws are written because guess what the laws are written by those companies right so you it's a it's exceptionally expensive but troy got a federal grant for a pilot body cam system like two two hundred thousand dollars they have the money but the cops are stalling on implementing it that's so silly. Like, it's totally unnecessary for them to have these things. Like, if you had a GoPro on, right, and especially if it was just, like, plugged into a little DC adapter for your car so that it was just being charged all the time, there's a mode on that thing that will continuously overwrite the last, like, six hours of footage or whatever. So, you basically just have that thing on all the time, and then you connect to it wirelessly with your little cop iPad and you just download the last uh, thing anytime you're filling out a report. Well, like bingo bango, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, well there, there, there's like some good reasons why that's not the case. Because like, um, like privacy concerns, like should that cop, should that cop's camera always be recording and then they can, without your consent, hit a button and now they have a recording of you, right? Or should these cameras be like, have some sort of larger system that is more tailored to like rights and chains of custody that these videos should have because that's the other thing right it's like if it's on a gopro then they're the only ones that have it 
This would, and I, I'm not completely sure how the taser system works, but I would hope that if you're going to spend all this money on a system that's constantly uploading to a cloud server, that then like access to the server would have some sort of democratic accountability to it. It wouldn't just be wholly owned by and only accessible by the police department or the officer that has the camera on them, right? Because that's, that would be opening up to tampering, right? Is if the, if the GoPro is only storing it locally, the video locally, right? And then the, the cop does something fucked up, he goes and, tur- you know, like deletes that That already happens it, with the taser Yeah, but it happens, uh, yeah. So I, I, I don't fucking know. But it's, I mean, most of the time, like, I, like anything where cops and, or cities have to lease a pro, uh, like a piece of technology, it's because it's designed to just hoover up money from local mm-hmm. uh, governments. The only significant know, so. difference that that kind of camera system would have is that it would, the cops would manage to take up even more of the city budget yeah. than they already do. And cops would turn it off whenever they wanted to do something that they don't want monitored, and and we should, which is what already happens in cities all across the country. And we should also say, though, that peer-reviewed studies of whether or not cop cams actually uh, do anything, they're usually just used as evidence for cops. And right. that's also how they are marketed to police departments. As like the, protect the, cops. Yeah, is like, this is video footage that literally shows it from the cop's perspective. And it, and if everyone else has cameras out there, you want your cops to have cameras too. Yeah, it's better to have the tape and, you know, be able to d- decide what to do with it yeah. than not even have it in the first place. But then, the, or, or even worse, having someone else has it. Yeah, right? well, and the, the premise that this video makes any difference anyway, like, if we have, how, many, how, how many clips do we have of cops, like, brutalizing somebody from their own fucking cop cam, and, and the happens. police department yeah. has to, is forced to release it to the public, yeah. and then everybody gets pissed off for a couple of days, and then something else happens. And, like, you know, they don't result in cops being held responsible for their actions it's a fucking scam it's a money grab on the part of taser on the part of you know these police departments it's also why so many police departments now at least uh ones of even medium to large cities have like dedicated full-time social media managers like Mm -hmm. they 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 put a lot of money into this now yeah a lot of a lot of companies have that too yeah yeah it's weird Uh, so but there's another toy that cops have what that we've been that we've been looking at we've been wanting to talk oh, about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I want to preface this that by saying, you know, um, dear listener, we, we, we do not have an intention on making Ironweeds like a constant cop shit talking podcast. It just happens, so happens, that there's a lot of it. <laughs> and, 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 and we don't like it. <laughs> and we don't like it. And it, it's very, um, it just, it, it, it's always at the intersections of various political discussions that I think are all very relevant because you know, it is like the enforcing arm of the state. And so it's ever present and it's constantly doing a wide variety of things, some of which I'm sure are really good, but the really heinous ones do pop up and like they're noteworthy. So we try to limit the exposure of that. So we're not talking about a couple of the things that we've been talking about off mic, but we do want to talk about this one little thing because holy shit, the police have built themselves a battle mech. <laughs> and it is terrifying. I'm speaking about the rook. Yeah, it, it, uh, when you first described it to me, uh, Chris, I was imagining like like in um, the second and third Matrix movies where they like get into like a thing that has like fully articulated arms oh, and like legs. Oh, like a bipedal yeah, walking yeah, and tech, had, like an ATSD. Yeah, yeah, it just has like uh, enormous, goofy looking machine guns for arms. Uh, Are but you that's, saying that's not what this is? 
Well, it's more like a uh, a cat like dump truck thing that has a giant phallus on it instead. Ah, okay. <laughs> so yeah, it's basically a treaded uh, personnel uh, carrier, like a little caterpillar like vehicle. I forget what those things are called, but um, and it has a bunch of attachments. And but this one is armored, so it's like completely like bulletproof. And has like these really intense uh, treads that look very tamper uh, resistant. And it has front ends uh, that you can clip on. One of which is an expandable ballistic shield that has a clear, thick polycarbonate viewport and a gun turret like hole that you put your the, the end of your rifle through so you can shoot, shoot through it. But if nobody you're wondering, Chris, you. Chris is currently <laughs> making a circle with one set of fingers and jamming his index finger into. Well, that's, he's he's that's doing the muzzle, like the. That, that's the muzzle of the, the rifle. Right. This is yeah. a technical diagram. Yeah. yeah. But so they have like two of those and it can it, you can stand four, you know, SWAT members uh, on it. And then it's deployable through a, a hydraulic articulating boom so that it can get up to like 11 feet high. So you can do like second floor window insertions with like a whole fire team. It's pretty crazy tech. And they also have a version of it that can like pick up like any car and drag it. Another version that can like grab and grip like a big chomping arm that's designed specifically to be able to break down buildings <laughs> like going in and taking out the second floor floor. So just ripping the whole ceiling and floor out with like one big chomp. And then they have another one that's literally just a giant like metal battering ram slash it looks like a dick and it's got all these cameras on the inside of like what looks like a head and <laughs> so it can like penetrate into the uh structure and then it you can it can see all around and they use through the dickhead yeah so we'll, i'll post the link and you can see it but basically they just like destroy and make like a breaching opening in the middle of a wall in like five seconds <laughs> And then there's just, like, the the video that is just as boring, even though it's, like, this, like, crazy dystopian thing, the video that you can find on YouTube that, like, is, I guess, the purchasing department, like, gets in order to know how to operate it, or it's, like, an advertisement for it. Yeah, yeah. it's, like, like, it's still as boring as if it was, like, telling you how to operate a normal forklift, right? Or it's, it's like, the Rook 9000 is available. Yeah, that, that video has a, owns, though. <laughs> has a joystick uh, interface that is use, easy to use and ergonomic. And it's like, what, really? Like, that's, <laughs> we care about ergonomics? So it doesn't even have, like, an epic soundtrack or, like, explosions in the background or anything? It's... Does it start with, like, a... Oh, I don't know. No. I think it might. We'll, we'll, it should. We'll post the link. It's, yeah. it's pretty uh, awesome. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, so the tech, very, very cool. But the uh, future... Uh, very very cruel. <laughs> well, we just what... have to we just have to expropriate the the rook, the rook for the people's use. Oh man, just like a dozen rooks just barreling <sighs> down the. Are they street. called rooks because they can only move forward and side to side? Uh, I think that they it's sort of like the representation of the the moving castle. Yeah, sort of, it's, yeah. Is, it, is it named after the chess piece? I think like, so. It, okay. It's it it looks to be that way. It's like basically fully armored inside the cab and then you can like deploy this like human you know mover that's also fully armored yeah i'd say it's a moving castle cool appropriately named very cool <laughs> well look for that in a neighborhood near you yeah i mean now i'm just imagining like you're all like uh you know waco texas style like you know held up in like a second floor room and you just hear 
or like you're in a Home Depot or something. And, like, <laughs> and then somebody just like <laughs> smashes yeah. through your wall. A giant, a giant dick yeah, just like, takes out your living room. Yeah, just <laughs> booze right through. I'm like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, this is the, the Warren County Police Department. <laughs> Oh my god. Come out with your dicks up. <laughs> yeah. So we have a very interesting wildflower this week. Wildflower in a sense that we've never quite used it before. This comes to us from Sojourners, which is, is I guess like a web magazine, right? Titled, Why Christian Anarchists Want to Burn It Down. Our unwillingness to think beyond current political structures is a failure of Christian imagination, say Jesus-loving anarchists. I know, I, I understand sentiments, uh, like very anti-religious, especially anti-organized religion sentiments, but I do also think that Christianity has, as well as Judaism, um, which, side note, Bernie appears to be starting to lean into his Jewishness with a new Instagram video that he just put out, and he has hired a Jewish outreach coordinator, which is pretty cool. Who is from the Pittsburgh uh, synagogue that the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh that was uh, the site Shut of uh, up. Yeah. seven. I think seventeen synagogue members were killed. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so I do think that religion can be a really powerful political organization framework, uh, especially you know when actually uh, adhering to the teachings of, like, say Jesus. <laughs> but anyway, Ben Wildflower is a self-described high church lowlife. He lives in Kensington, a Philadelphia neighborhood that's also home to intravenous drug users and sex workers. Wildflower, the surname he and his wife adopted after their marriage, is white, bearded, and male. He grew up among conservative evangelicals, but now attends an Episcopal church, a wonderful welcoming space for so many people alienated by the church, he said, but also a bizarre bourgeois institution. Sometimes he fixes his roommate's bikes to cover rent. He aims to live on very little. So it goes on to say, I, I came across Wildflower through his handmade religious prints that resembled the black and white woodcuts found in the Catholic worker, albeit with a little more attitude. Oh, Mary conceived without white supremacy, reads one of Wildflower's prints featuring the Holy Mother using aerosol flamethrowers to destroy Confederate and Nazi symbols. Cool. Pray for us trying to dismantle this shit. <laughs> Where did they buy that? I know, right? <laughs> um... Wildflower doesn't love the word anarchist because it sounds too self-assured, like how a super duper reformed person has answers for everything. I think that's that critique of anarchists rings really true to me. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So many of the anarchists that I've known and uh, and loved have been those <laughs> kinds of like uh, very staunch. I mine is the correct way. And mm -hmm. anybody who disagrees is, is sort of like on on the wrong path. So Ant, the word anarchist often evokes scenes of white dudes eager to break stuff and punch cops. But he sticks with it. I'm an anarchist because I oppose hierarchical power structures, says Wildflower. You apply it to sex and gender, you have feminism. You apply it to white supremacy and racism, and you have anti-racism. So what is it when you apply it to the modern state? I guess we don't have a word better than anarchism. So that's, you know, he just kind of goes on to say, he, one, one great quote from him is, the thought of America crumbling should bring you joy, Wildflower told me in an interview last spring. He says of prisons, I think people are valuable and shouldn't be warehoused in cages. I don't think prison changes people. I don't think it makes us safer. I think it's a tool to control and impoverish communities of color. I want it to be destroyed. 
And then then it closes out with a system that holds this is his quote, a system that holds people accountable for injustices looks so unimaginably different than the than the prison system that I'm still totally on the burn it down side. So we'll post a link to this in the show notes. You have to have a subscription to read the full version, but even this um, abbreviated version is quite good. And so, Chris, who this was sent to us by a friend of the pod, right? Yeah. Cadme is like their handle. Oh, yeah. So word up to Cadme. Yeah. (laughs) And thanks for your support on Patreon. We super appreciate you. Yeah. So, yeah, this is um, a pretty awesome little uh, story. And it rings true for me as my experience with Catholic workers. You know, so I was like raised Catholic and, you know, went to like church on Sundays and stuff and was like a God fearing child and what have you. But um, the the people that I uh, most associated with, like living the life of Jesus that were like within the church were the Catholic workers who like took a vow of poverty, like basically just like lived with and around people who were just getting out of the injustice system or like people that uh, you just needed a place to, to sleep for the night. And like, you know, raised a family in, in that environment and, you know, just like really cool people. Um, yeah. The Schaefer Duffy's like, there's a, there's a pretty good podcast called know your enemy. That is, um, one of the co-hosts is a Catholic, like I would say like socialist light. I think they stand Warren pretty hard in one of their episodes. Um, but it's a good show and it's, it's about like American conservatism, conservatism, conservatism. Either. the american right um and he yeah he he writes for the catholic is it the catholic worker whatever the publication yeah, yeah. is um yeah the catholic worker it's a pretty good show i, I recommend it to folks it's not as good as this podcast but it's pretty good you always put that one behind ours right in yeah. the queue yeah just while you're waiting for the new app of iron weeds to come out maybe check out um know your enemy yeah yeah i i, I like the i like the setup that wildflower makes about uh uh, anarchism is to the state as like feminism is to uh patriarchy i thought i thought that was a that's a well put together argument i don't know i, I think that, that that's a good analogy mm-hmm. yeah. uh because it, w- when you get caught up in uh, uh all the different sorts of uh tendencies that you can be on the left i i that's how i usually think about my you know whatever parts of me i consider to be anarchist is that I just I would like the state to go away, please, and uh, and and that would be full communism. But uh, I, I guess I, I put more emphasis on that than uh, or I want it to be done sooner. Right. I put put a priority on that one, uh, and so that's one of the ways that I come to calling myself a an, an anarchist. Although lately I've been playing around with that. Uh, identifier for myself to be honest but yeah, I, think, um, I think I fall in line with the critique that I've seen many uh, women and people of color and other folks from like marginalized uh, standpoints if we want to use some kind of standpoint theory but is that uh, anarchism doesn't offer maybe we've talked about this previously I think in the last bonus episode anarchism doesn't offer the redistributive model that I think is going to be necessary before tearing down hierarchies mm-hmm. like it's it tearing down all of our hierarchies while the rich people still have all the stuff and the patriarchs still have all of the like social capital mm-hmm. is uh, I think poses a lot of problems for what happens next. And I, previously I've talked about it as they're not being a good enough model for transition that doesn't result in like just millions of people dying. My thoughts on things as time goes on, it's like there's going to be something like a free market, like in my utopian vision of a future so where people 
have who have surplus time and leisure can go about the, their efforts of the day if they want to build in you know in industries for the purpose of like toys or whatever the fuck and like it's all voluntarily associative and like nobody needs it to survive because there's this other society that everyone's participatory with that like takes care of like the basics of life yeah there are um, restaurants in star trek so yeah, yeah that's totally so, so that's, like that's, that's, yeah, the point that's is compatible. okay but that's star trek yeah but, no. but, but no, I guess, that's full I, communism i guess that's, <laughs> what i'm saying is like i i see the ability of coexistence between like private industry and free market capitalism and some type of you know communist state of like coexisting and taking care of one another that's like a very libertarian approach though and as you as you'll see in in chapter three there are times when kropotkin sounds very much like an ancap he sounds very much like an anarcho-capitalist and that uh is to me not compatible with human flourishing Mm, and thriving i do not think that a because in a free in a quote-unquote free market this kind of laissez-faire uh market of transaction and the Mm. move of goods and services if 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 we are so atomized in terms of what, how we value people's contributions to society and the value of certain goods, that lends itself to a hierarchy much, much more so than a system of representational government and electing delegates to go make decisions on your behalf. Mm, but he also stresses the importance of like all enterprises being completely democratically like maintained by the workers and like they're yeah, but he gives no good model for how that actually works with that hierarchy wow and i think that is a big failing of a lot of anarchist theory yeah well i think it's the work to be done is what my always always say and it's just like we we gotta keep pushing things forward because like if if on one hand it represents a type of utopian ideal and on the other we because of currently understood to be intractable problems we can't you know approach that ideal with any type of like action to try and build a future toward it like i don't know i i love the this type of debate i love to try to figure out you know yeah yeah i, I suppose that what one thing that isn't explicitly laid out in marx but i've always thought was kind of crucial to it and i must have read this somewhere but i, I can't throw the citation down but you know um part of the historical materialism what what's important about having a moment where there is a state that uh, controls most of the means of production. So you, you have to go from socialism to communism is that uh, I, uh, you create a generation of people that is, that have lived under socialism, which make, which is what makes it possible to move to communism because you have, you have people that were not, that aren't alienated. And it's only, right. it's only people who have like lived a whole life of unalienated labor that they are, in some ways, I think enlightened enough to live under communism, which I think is like maybe the the difference that this is a theory that I've had. It's maybe a little out there, but that a lot of people that are otherwise pretty far left will subscribe to like Afro pessimism and uh, gyno pessimism, right? These like ideas that I'm actually unfamiliar with. Yeah, these. well, the, these are you know like ideas that um, say, for example, with Afro pessimism, the kind of Tanahasi Coates line that white supremacy is innate and in biological and like like deep 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 into the psyche to the point that we're not salvageable uh the psyche of all people yeah 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 but but mostly sort of like of of you know like white people are um 
like un- hardwired to be hardwired racist, to yeah. be racist. And so, like the the problem is that th- this will just always be a strug- a site of struggle. There's no possibility of progress. Huh. And um, and I think I think the only difference between and I think that that gets enticing because we lose sight of the fact that like people or that not just people, not individual people, but societies can change and move forward and adapt and become better than they were. And that's and, and so because like that that's where we get to like arguments over like liberal arguments. I'll say like, well, why can't we have universal health care and you'll get like otherwise liberals say like well because we're a much more diverse country and they're like what like why the hell which the, is inherently the, a the, racist the, argument yeah yeah, yeah, that like Norway, right. yeah like yeah. that doesn't make any fucking sense but they're like yeah, well, yeah but like here are all these different like lived outcomes of uh black people and white people in our healthcare industry it's like yeah well yes because we live in a racist society that uh upheld you know that capitalism requires racism yeah you know so like that and so i, I think we we that's what i i think of when i'm like listening to you talk about like whether or not um yeah the state needs to happen first it's that that is that communism or anarchism to be honest like i don't trust people who've lived under capitalism with the kinds of personal freedoms that anarchism would give them yeah so, that's almost like the socialist state teaches us how to be cooperative in the first place yeah we, ha- we don't have enough experience with that way of living yet to just start start from square one yeah. in a cooperative um social unit so the, the we had talked about this on a previous episode but the there the ongoing sort of debate on the left as it relates to the you know sem- semantics of anarchism is that some people view it as a philosophy uh primarily about radical individualism and other people um and individual rights um and other people view it as philosophy of radical democracy mm-hmm. and like individual representation in what the greater society does, especially as it relates to both the economic and the political and social like traditions and, and customs and rules. And I've always been, I think, more in the latter camp. Um, and I see the, what you were talking about as, you know, the difference between the, we send representatives away, they come back with laws that they're going to use the cops to like enforce for whatever purpose the laws end up actually, you know, enforcing um and versus we're coming back to you guys having gotten your you know um deserved um uh, authority voluntarily to be your representatives we've like come back with a series of proposals that we'd like you know the society to talk about but, for a while uh, yeah but I and think then the we'll, par- we'll like come up with a vote and have a, a, a really even uh way of like dealing with it yeah but but the the democracy that would happen with everyone like around here right now would be racist it would be a very it would be Absolutely. really bad vote it would yeah. be a vote that is, is would scare the shit out of me yeah uh so i i would want to have a society that moves through a period where they are not alienated from their labor and uh divided across race and uh, before we, before by... we get that that sort of level of control over each other and you know it's not even just alienation it's the forces of corporatism that control everything from the news that you consume to the you know curriculum that you're taught as a school child like these forces uh generate a level of tribalism and like mistrust of your neighbors that cannot be overcome in one fail swoop of revolution like yeah. it takes it's going to take generations to undo that learning and i in the meantime i don't trust the people around me enough 
to be making decisions for me at mm. such an egalitarian level. Mm. But, but you know, like you can see that it's like still there. Like when we got snowed in here, yeah, a while ago, like the the guy that runs the restaurant next yeah, yeah, door, yeah. like you know, helped us out for requesting no money. Like it's not like some sort of like weird libertarian yeah, yeah. thing, of where, course, right? Of course. Where he's like calculating how yeah. much value he yeah. can <laughs> extract from us for that, right? Uh, but he, but we know he's a Republican. Like he, ha- yeah, absolutely. you know, yeah, of course, and, yeah. and that's because like people do you know, contra, you know, like all the ideology of from economics departments, you know, like people do default to... I just saw the most... Like help with each other. Yeah. There was a post on Reddit this morning before we started potting that where somebody was saying, um, Americans are really good at um, short-term empathy and really bad at long-term compassion. So meaning that um, in, an, in an instance like that, everybody snowed in. Americans are really like our culture is very adept at saying extreme situation. We have to help everybody. If yeah. there's a flood, you know, you'll see people out handing out bottles of water on their own free time. But the long term compassion things like, you know, getting universal universal health care for everybody, th- those those larger social goals, we tend to become very tribal and think, you know, every man for himself. Yeah. And I don't see why I should have to spend tax dollars so that somebody else can get transition therapy yeah. and, and um, medical treatment. And so that, I think, is the work that socialism does, is to build those social systems that create the long-term compassionate structures that we're going to need when, ultimately, we want the state to wither away. Yeah. And it, living in our society right now, we have this sort of consumer identification of ourselves to the point where we really feel a ton of importance around choice, especially as it relates to taking care of the vulnerable. Like you'll have like a ton of Americans who are basically like extremely pro charity and think it's fine that there are like billionaires that are accumulating the species wealth because at least they are giving a bunch of it away and that giving it away allows for the people with the resources by which we've all had a hand in generating to on their whim determine the distribution and because it's voluntary there's like a you know really solid argument for having that but if it were compulsory if you were requiring them to through some type of either social or physical force that you're going to try to bring to bear to get the outcome that you want, then suddenly it goes from being like what was a, just a very virtuous thing that, you know, this individual was like donating to this, you know, orphanage to wait, you're going to make this person donate to this orphanage. Like that's fucked up and, and bullshit. And there's like a very real and just driving thing, which is like the idea of using coercion and violence to like extract value for the purposes of that. But it's just a way of framing the conversation that's very alien to it's like, wait, but you just said that like we should be taking care of orphans and like requiring a tax that like we all put together is just one method of trying to bring about this thing in that is like long term, reliable, continuous, steady and proportionate to the need and like all these other things that like make sense. So it's like, oh, like if you think it's cool for us to as a group figure out how to take care of these people but you're not okay with us collectively deciding how we're going to divvy the fruits of our labor toward that end you just want to rely on the chaotic nature of like virtuous millionaires it's futile right you just like just hope that you you get uh lucky and that the the feudal lord nearest to you cares about whatever issue 
like face you face right like that, that's that's what that is yeah it's just power like a benevolent yeah benevolent king you yeah know? yeah yeah so i think all of this sets us up really nicely for chapter three of uh conquest of bread you're also going to see that it did not age well um a lot of the stuff that kropotkin is saying already exists as free voluntary associations or resources that are you're really going to notice how how starkly things have been privatized in, say, the last, like, 60, 70 years. A lot of the stuff that Kropotkin is talking about either no longer exists or has been privatized um, to a great extent. So I think that also puts a little bit of a ding in his model for governance and the kind of political system that corresponds to the end of exploitation. Um, it's, it's something to chew on, I think. Uh, a lot of what he says is very evergreen and a lot of what he says shows how far we've actually come from what could have been probably would have been a lot easier to create a more just society in 1890 than it is now, I guess is what I'm saying. Interesting. Right. Right, yeah. um, so I hope that you enjoy it. And if you do like the, if you like what you hear, you like the Kropotkin, consider supporting us on Patreon so we can do more of that stuff. Yeah. It's funny that that you have that take because I took it the exact opposite way, which is like, holy shit, all of the uh, uh, layers of uh, production that he's mentioning have only increased in efficiency like a hundredfold. We're like even richer and greater capacity to actually like, you know, take care of one another than we ever have been in the past. I agree, but it's in the it's in the hands of a fewer and fewer, smaller and smaller percentage of the population. Yeah. And like when he's talking, he's saying water flows freely into your homes and nobody is metering it and checking how much money you owe for it. And it's like and I'm saying that as I'm looking at my water bill on the You're kitchen like, counter. Yeah, yeah. And he's talking about, not... you know, uh, well lit streets that everybody has access to and all of this free, you know, shared space that everybody has access to and libraries and all of a sudden it's like libraries are closing all across the country. Um, homeless people are being denied access to the bathrooms in the library. Like, all, like so much has become either privatized or uh, or um, just gentrified. Mm -hmm. It's become like segregated. You know, yeah. yeah, there are still well lit streets. It's just they're not. They're only in rich people neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's kind of both, right? Like our productive capacity has grown a million fold. Yes, absolutely. And but I think that we are much further from actually getting that hand, getting that those resources into the hands of the many than we were when Kropotkin was writing. And it might have been kind of uh, uh, romanticized even then because, because the Victorian city was horrifying. Yeah. Well, and he romanticizes the Americans a lot, not just oh, yeah, in this yeah, chapter, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it, it will get even worse in chapters to come where he's like, oh, these us Europeans, we don't know what we're doing. Look at what the Americans are doing. And it's like, oh, dude, if you could see a hundred years in the future, you would feel so differently. Well, we, we are very exotic and beautiful. Though. It's true. Yeah, yeah. we are. <laughs> So that I think will do it for us. Today, All right. Yeah. Right, thanks guys? so much. Um, you can um, find us on Twitter. Iron Weeds Pod. You can find us on Instagram. Iron Weeds Pod. Shoot us an email at ironweedspod at, at gmail.com. <laughs> Please support us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash ironweeds. Thanks to those who already do. Um, no takers yet on getting our first ever baby weeds uh, ironweeds episode. Oh, yeah. But yeah, if well. you. I think I'm going to put down the hammer and say you got to sign up by the end of January. If you Whoa. sign up for the end of January, oh, uh, you'll get it. And if you don't, you won't. And, and it doesn't count if you cancel your Patreon and re and redo yeah, it. it we're we're looking at you. Yeah, I know. Uh, person. I see you. Yeah. I see you out there. All right. Enjoy Conquest of Bread. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Chapter 3. 
Anarchist Communism Every society which has abolished private property will be forced, we maintain, to organize itself on the lines of communistic anarchy. Anarchy leads to communism, and communism to anarchy, both alike being expressions of the predominant tendency in modern societies, the pursuit of equality. Time was when a peasant family could consider the corn which it grew, or the woolen garments woven in the cottage, as the products of its own toil. But even then, this way of looking at things was not quite correct. There were the roads and the bridges made in common, the swamps drained by common toil, and the communal pastures enclosed by hedges which were kept in repair by each and all. If the looms for weaving or the dyes for coloring fabrics were improved, all profited. So, even in those days, a peasant family could not live alone, but was dependent in a thousand ways on the village or the commune. But nowadays, in the present state of industry, when everything is interdependent, when each branch of production is knit up with all the rest, the attempt to claim an individualist origin for the products of industry is absolutely untenable. The astonishing perfection attained by the textile or mining industries in civilized countries is due to the simultaneous development of a thousand other industries, great and small, to the extension of the railroad system, to interoceanic navigation, to the manual skill of thousands of workers, to a certain standard of culture reached by the working classes as a whole, to the labors, in short, of men in every corner of the globe. The Italians who died of cholera while making the Suez Canal, or of ankylosis in the St. Goddard Tunnel, and the Americans mowed down by shot and shell while fighting for the abolition of slavery, have helped to develop the cotton industry in France and England, as well as the work girls who languish in the factories of Manchester and Rouen, and the inventor who, following the suggestion of some worker, succeeds in improving the looms. How then shall we estimate the share of each in the riches which all contribute to amass? Looking at production from this general, synthetic point of view, we cannot hold with the collectivists that payment proportionate to the hours of labor rendered by each would be an ideal arrangement, or even a step in the right direction. Without discussing whether exchange value of goods is really measured in existing societies by the amount of work necessary to produce it, according to the doctrine of Smith and Ricardo, in whose footsteps Marx has followed, suffice it to say here, leaving ourselves free to return to the subject later, that the collectivist ideal appears to us untenable in a society which considers the instruments of labor as a common inheritance. Starting from this principle, such a society would find itself forced from the very outset to abandon all forms of wages. The mitigated individualism of the collectivist system certainly could not maintain itself alongside a partial communism, the socialization of land, and the instruments of production. A new form of property requires a new form of remuneration. A new method of production cannot exist side by side with the old forms of consumption, any more than it can adapt itself to the old forms of political organization. The wage system arises out of the individual ownership of the land and the instruments of labor. It was the necessary condition for the development of capitalist production, and will perish with it, in spite of the attempt to disguise it as profit-sharing. The common possession of the instruments of labor must necessarily bring with it the enjoyment in common of the fruits of common labor. We hold further that communism is not only desirable, but that existing societies, founded on individualism, 
are inevitably impelled in the direction of communism. The development of individualism during the last three centuries is explained by the efforts of the individual to protect himself from the tyranny of capital and of the state. For a time, he imagined, and those who expressed his thought for him declared, that he could free himself entirely from the state and from society. By means of money, he said, I can buy all that I need. But the individual was on a wrong tack, and modern history has taught him to recognize that, without the help of all, he can do nothing, although his strong boxes are full of gold. In fact, alongside this current of individualism, we find in all modern history a tendency, on the one hand, to retain all that remains of the partial communism of antiquity, and, on the other, to establish the communist principle in the thousand developments of modern life. As soon as the communes of the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries had succeeded in emancipating themselves from their lords, ecclesiastical or lay, their communal labor and communal consumption began to extend and develop rapidly. The township, and not private persons, freighted ships and equipped expeditions, and the benefit arising from the foreign trade did not accrue to individuals but was shared by all. The townships also bought provisions for their citizens. Traces of these institutions have lingered on into the 19th century, and the folk piously cherish the memory of them in their legends. All that has disappeared. But the rural township still struggles to preserve the last traces of this communism, and it succeeds, except when the state throws its heavy sword into the balance. Meanwhile, new organizations, based on the same principle, to every man according to his needs, spring up under a thousand different forms. For without a certain leaven of communism, the present societies could not exist. In spite of the narrowly egoistic turn given to men's minds by the commercial system, the tendency toward communism is constantly appearing and influences our activities in a variety of ways. The bridges, for the use of which a toll was levied in the old days, are now become public property and free to all. So are the high roads, except in the east where a toll is still exacted from the traveler for every mile of his journey. Museums, free libraries, free schools, free meals for children, parks and gardens open to all, streets paved and lighted, free to all, water supplied to every house without measure or stint. All such arrangements are founded on the principle, take what you need. The tramways and railways have already introduced monthly and annual season tickets without limiting the number of journeys taken. And two nations, Hungary and Russia, have introduced on their railways the zone system, which permits the holder to travel 500 or 1,000 miles for the same price. It is but a short step from that to a uniform charge, such as already prevails in the postal service. In all these innovations, and a 1,000 others, the tendency is not to measure the individual consumption. One man wants to travel 1,000 miles, another 500. These are personal requirements. There is no sufficient reason why one should pay twice as much as the other because his need is twice as great. Such are the signs which appear even now in our individualist societies. Moreover, there is a tendency, though still a feeble one, to consider the needs of the individual, irrespective of his past or possible services to the community. We are beginning to think of society as a whole, each part of which is so intimately bound up with the others that a service rendered to one is a service rendered to all. When you go into a public library, 
not indeed the National Library of Paris, but, say, into the British Museum or the Berlin Library. The librarian does not ask what services you have rendered to society before giving you the book or the fifty books which you require, and he comes to your assistance if you do not know how to manage the catalog. By means of uniform credentials, and very often a contribution of work is preferred, the scientific society opens its museums, its gardens, its library, its laboratories, and its annual conversations to each of its members, whether he be a Darwin or a simple amateur. At St. Petersburg, if you are pursuing an invention, you go into a special laboratory or a workshop, where you are given a place, a carpenter's bench, a turning lathe, all the necessary tools and scientific instruments, provided only you know how to use them. And you are allowed to work there as long as you please. There are the tools. Interest others in your idea, join with fellow workers skilled in various crafts, or work alone if you prefer it. Invent a flying machine or invent nothing. That is your own affair. You are pursuing an idea. That is enough. In the same way, those who man the lifeboat do not ask credentials from the crew of a sinking ship. They launch their boat, risk their lives in the raging waves, and sometimes perish, all to save men whom they do not even know. And what need to know them? They are human beings, and they need our aid. That is enough. That establishes their right. To the rescue. Thus, we find a tendency, eminently communistic, springing up on all sides and in various guises, in the very heart of theoretically individualist societies. Suppose that one of our great cities, so egotistic in ordinary times, were visited tomorrow by some calamity, a siege, for instance. That same selfish city would decide that the first needs to satisfy were those of the children and the aged. Without asking what services they had rendered, or were likely to render to society, it would first of all feed them. Then the combatants would be cared for, irrespective of the courage or the intelligence which each has displayed, and thousands of men and women would outvie each other in unselfish devotion to the wounded. This tendency exists, and is felt as soon as the most pressing needs of each are satisfied, and in proportion as the productive power of the race increases. It becomes an active force every time a great idea comes to oust the mean preoccupations of everyday life. How can we doubt, then, that when the instruments of production are placed at the service of all, when business is conducted on communist principles, when labor, having recovered its place of honor in society, produces much more than is necessary to all, how can we doubt but that this force, already so powerful, will enlarge its sphere of action till it becomes the ruling principle of social life. Following these indications, and considering further the practical side of expropriation, of which we shall speak in the following chapters, we are convinced that our first obligation, when the revolution shall have broken the power upholding the present system, will be to realize communism without delay. But ours is neither the communism of Fourier and the Phalansterians, nor the German state socialists, it is anarchist communism, communism without government, the communism of the free. It is the synthesis of the two ideals pursued by humanity throughout the ages, economic and political liberty. In taking anarchy for our ideal of political organization, we are only giving expression to another marked tendency of human progress. Whenever European societies have developed up to a certain point, they have shaken off the yoke of authority 
and substituted a system founded roughly more or less on the principles of individual liberty. And history shows us that these periods of partial or general revolution, when the governments were overthrown, were also periods of sudden progress both in the economic and the intellectual field. Now it is the enfranchisement of the communes, whose monuments, produced by the free labor of the guilds, have never been surpassed. Now it is the peasant rising which brought about the Reformation and imperiled the papacy. And then, again, it is the society, free for a brief space, which was created at the other side of the Atlantic by the malcontents from the Old World. Further, if we observe the present development of civilized peoples, we see, most unmistakably, a movement ever more and more marked to limit the sphere of action of the government and to allow more and more liberty to the individual. This evolution is going on before our eyes, though cumbered by the ruins and rubbish of old institutions and old superstitions. Like all evolutions, it only waits a revolution to overthrow the old obstacles which block the way, that it may find free scope in a regenerated society. After having striven long in vain to solve the insoluble problem, the problem of constructing a government which will constrain the individual to obedience without itself ceasing to be the servant of society, men at last attempt to free themselves from every form of government and to satisfy their need for organization by a free contract between individuals and groups pursuing the same aim. The independence of each small territorial unit becomes a pressing need. Mutual agreement replaces law and everywhere regulates individual interests in view of a common object. All that was once looked on as a function of the government is today called in question. Things are arranged more easily and more satisfactorily without the intervention of the state. And in studying the progress made in this direction, we are led to conclude that the tendency of the human race is to reduce government interference to zero. In fact, to abolish the state the personification of injustice, oppression, and monopoly. We can already catch glimpses of a world in which the bonds which bind the individual are no longer laws but social habits, the result of the need felt by each one of us to seek the support, the cooperation, the sympathy of his neighbors. Assuredly, the idea of a society without a state will give rise to at least as many objections as the political economy of a society without private capital. We have all been brought up from our childhood to regard the state as a sort of providence. All our education, the Roman history we learned at school, the Byzantine code which we studied later under the name of Roman law, and the various sciences taught at the universities, accustom us to believe in government and in the virtues of the state providential. To maintain this superstition, whole systems of philosophy have been elaborated and taught. All politics are based on this principle and each politician, whatever his colors, comes forward and says to the people, Give me the power, and I both can and will free you from the miseries which press so heavily upon you. From the cradle to the grave, all our actions are guided by this principle. Open any book on sociology or jurisprudence, and you will find there the government, its organizations, its acts, filling so large a place that we come to believe that there is nothing outside the government in the world of statesmen. The press teaches us the same in every conceivable way. Whole columns are devoted to parliamentary debates and to political intrigues. The vast everyday life of a nation is barely mentioned in a few lines when dealing with economic subjects, law, or relating to police cases. And when you read these newspapers, 
you hardly think of the incalculable number of beings, all humanity, so to say, who grow up and die, who know sorrow, who work and consume, think and create outside the few encumbering personages who have been so magnified that humanity is hidden by their shadows, enlarged by our ignorance. And yet, as soon as we pass from printed matter to life itself, as soon as we throw a glance at society, we are struck by the infinitesimal part played by the government. Balzac already remarked how millions of peasants spend the whole of their lives without knowing anything about the state, save the heavy taxes they are compelled to pay. Every day, millions of transactions are made without government intervention, and the greatest of them, those of commerce and of the exchange, are carried on in such a way that the government could not be appealed to if one of the contracting parties had the intention of not fulfilling his agreement. Should you speak to a man who understands commerce, he will tell you that the everyday business transacted by merchants would be absolutely impossible were it not based on mutual confidence. The habit of keeping his word, the desire not to lose his credit, amply suffice to maintain this relative honesty. The man who does not feel the slightest remorse when poisoning his customers with noxious drugs covered with pompous labels thinks he is honor-bound to keep his engagements. Now, if this relative morality has developed under present conditions, when enrichment is the only incentive and the only aim, can we doubt its rapid progress when appropriation of the fruits of others' labor will no longer be the basis of society? Another striking fact, which especially characterizes our generation, speaks still more in favor of our ideas. It is the continual extension of the field of enterprise due to private initiative and the prodigious development of free groups of all kinds. We shall discuss this more at length in the chapter devoted to free agreement. Suffice it to mention that the facts are so numerous and so customary that they are the essence of the second half of the 19th century, even though political and socialist writers ignore them, always preferring to talk to us about the functions of government. These organizations, free and infinitely varied, are so natural an outcome of our civilization. They expand so rapidly and group themselves with so much ease. They are so necessary a result of the continual growth of the needs of civilized man. And lastly, they so advantageously replace governmental interference that we must recognize in them a factor of growing importance in the life of societies. If they do not yet spread over the whole of the manifestations of life, it is that they find an insurmountable obstacle in the poverty of the worker, in the castes of present society, in the private appropriation of capital, and in the state. Abolish these obstacles and you will see them covering the immense field of civilized man's activity. The history of the last 50 years furnishes a living proof that representative government is impotent to discharge the functions we have sought to assign to it. In days to come, the 19th century will be quoted as having witnessed the failure of parliamentarianism. But this impotence is becoming evident to all. The faults of parliamentarianism and the inherent vices of the representative principle are self-evident, and the few thinkers who have made a critical study of them John Stuart Mill and Leverdays, did but give literary form to the popular dissatisfaction. It is not difficult, indeed, to see the absurdity of naming a few men and saying to them, make laws regulating all our spheres of activity, although not one of you knows anything about them. We are beginning to see that government by majorities means abandoning all the affairs of the country to the tide waiters who make up the majorities in the House 
and in election committees, to those, in a word, who have no opinion of their own. But mankind is seeking and already finding new issues. The International Postal Union, the Railway Unions, and the Learned Societies give us examples of solutions based on free agreement in place instead of law. Today, when groups scattered far and wide wish to organize themselves for some object or other, they no longer elect an international parliament of jacks-of-all-trades. No, where it is not possible to meet directly or come to an agreement by correspondence, delegates versed in the question at issue are sent to treat, with the instructions, endeavor to come to an agreement on such or such a question, and then return not with a law in your pocket, but with a proposition of agreement which we may or may not accept. Such is the method of the great industrial companies, the learned societies, and the associations of every description which already cover Europe and the United States. And such should be the method of an emancipated society. While bringing about expropriation, society cannot continue to organize itself on the principle of parliamentary representation. A society founded on serfdom is in keeping with absolute monarchy. A society based on the wage system and the exploitation of the masses by the capitalists finds its political expression in parliamentarianism. But a free society, regaining possession of the common inheritance, must seek, in free groups and free federations of groups, a new organization, in harmony with the new economic phase of history. Every economic phase has a political phase corresponding to it, and it would be impossible to touch property without finding at the same time a new mode of political life.